We're reminded every day when we look online, whether it's in our feeds or whether it's in the news or we turn on our televisions, of the growing count of those who have been infected and of those who are dying. We see even in our own country and in our own cities, those numbers sometimes doubling day by day. And we wonder when or if whatever's happening in the rest of the world is going to end up on our own doorsteps. We grow concerned as to whether or not this will be our fate, and perhaps it will. And even in the light of tribulations such as these, which I loved what Ryan said, though they're unprecedented for many of us, are not unprecedented for God, that fall within the range of his providence and will work ultimately according to his will and for our good, we are still left needing encouragement. In John 16, Jesus is about to finish his last supper with his disciples. He is about to begin his high priestly prayer where he will ask that they be one, that the Lord preserves and protects them in the world as Christ will no longer be with them bodily and he will begin his move into Jerusalem and toward the cross, the hour for which he has come and he will be glorified in his death. And so this is his last meal on death row with his disciples. And as would normally be the case, as he spends much time and many words preparing his disciples for reality of following him in a world that is hostile to him and to the gospel and has been cursed by sin in this creation that is groaning, his final words should be among the most encouraging words, and they are. John 16, verse 33, is what we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Let me just give you a little bit of context here at the end of John 16. These are the last words that Jesus gives to his disciples. You notice there in chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he switched his audience. Who's he talking to there? The Father. So he is done at the end of 16, talking to his disciples, and he begins in chapter 17, speaking to his Father in his high priestly prayer. So, Verse 33 in chapter 16 are the last words that he's going to speak in this final discourse, in this upper room, in this last supper, before he heads to the cross. And these are the words that he had to say. And he wants to encourage them to stand faithful 
They are going to be shell-shocked. They're going to be scattered each to their own homes. They're not going to know what hit them. All that they had put their hope on seems to, in a matter of hours and days, to have fallen apart. And here we have the Savior preparing them for these days and the days that will follow. The big idea here in this verse, and really it's, it can be expanded to this section, is this. Because Christ has overcome the world, we are able to own peace and overcome the world in him. Because Christ has overcome the world, we are able to own peace and overcome the world in him. We're going to consider three things, three basic aspects to this single verse. They're easy to see. Number one, you can have peace. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. That's number one. You can have peace. Number two, you will have trouble. In the world, he says, you will have tribulation. So our second point is that you will have trouble. Thirdly, you must be courageous. But take heart, he says. I have overcome the world. He says, take heart. You must be courageous. Three things. You can have peace. You will have trouble. You must be courageous. Let's just follow our Savior through his logic here as he seeks to encourage his disciples toward faithfulness. Consider that first point, you can have peace. We're going to see a handful of things here. We're going to see preparation. We are going to see not only preparation, but we are going to also see purpose. Why is he preparing them? And we are going to see possession. How do they come to possess this peace? So preparation, purpose, and possession. Consider that first one. He says, I have said these things. Jesus is preparing them. I want to focus in there on what are the things that he's saying? Well, he's talking about everything that he's spoken to them in this upper room discourse, beginning in John chapter 13, ending in John 16, before he goes into his high priestly prayer in John 17. So it's everything that he said to them in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And these are not just ordinary words. These are words from the Son of God. I have said these things. Jesus has spoken to them at least three different kinds of words. He's spoken to them holy words. He has spoken to them loving words. And he has spoken to them truthful words. When I say that he's spoken to them holy words, what I mean is that everything that Jesus speaks, he speaks words from the Father. He doesn't speak on his own authority. He only speaks those things which the Father has revealed to him and given him to speak. His words are not the words of a wise rabbi merely, and they're not the words of a good teacher or a philosopher or a moralist merely. His words are God's words. They're holy words. That is why Jesus is called the word. He's the ultimate one through whom God has spoken. And because Jesus only speaks what the Father has given him to speak, his words, according to the psalmist, oh, they are perfect and sure and right and pure and clean 
and true. His words are words that revive the soul, make wise the simple, and rejoice the heart. They enlighten the eyes, they endure forever, and they are altogether righteous. His word, because they are God's words, are to be desired more than gold, even more than much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey and even the dripping of a honeycomb. Jesus spoke to them a holy word. These are God's words to the disciples. But he didn't just speak to them a holy word. He also spoke to them a loving word. Look back at the beginning of chapter 13. As Jesus turns his attention away from the world and toward his disciples in final preparation. Look at verse 1, how John introduces this entire section. Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How did he love them to the end? Answer, well, obviously all the way to the cross, but in this section, he loves them by instructing them, preparing them, teaching them promises according to the good news of the gospel, and warning them about what is to come. And so he speaks to them, not just holy words, but he speaks loving words. That by beginning this section in the Upper Room Discourse this way, he wants to make, John wants to make sure that we know that everything that takes place on this night is motivated by Jesus' love for his own. We see from the start in the washing of the disciples' feet how Jesus' love is so unlike our love. It is in fickle. It's not self-serving as Mark prayed. It doesn't just love those who loves him in return. In fact, we see that he shows love to those whom he knows will betray him and will deny him in the end. And so Jesus and these handful of chapters in this upper room discourse is speaking to them, not only holy words, but loving words. But thirdly, he's also speaking to them true words. Because Jesus speaks only holy words, that means that everything that he says corresponds with reality, even when what he says is hard to understand. And because Jesus speaks only loving words, everything he says is always in their best interest and ours, even when what he says is really hard to hear. In fact, after washing their feet, Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him and another one is going to deny him. And yet, right in between his telling them this, he tells them, you have to love one another. Isn't it interesting that Jesus sandwiches his command for them to love one another with Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial? These are the ones that you have to love as disciples like these, disciples like us. And then he tells them right after that that he's going to leave them. He says, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I've got to go to the Father. My time is up. My hour has arrived. And where I'm going, you aren't going to be able to follow me, at least not yet. But even though he's leaving them, he tells them, I'm not abandoning you. In fact, he says, the reason that I'm leaving is so that I might go and prepare a place for you. I'm leaving 
for you. In fact, he goes on to say that, in fact, even in my leaving, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm still going to be with you, but in a slightly different way. Because as soon as I return to my father, my father is going to send the Holy Spirit in my name and he will teach you and he will comfort you and he will cause you to abide in me, John 15. He will cause you to abide through my word and in my love and I will give you my peace and through him my joy will be in you. But he goes on to say, listen guys, it's not going to be all puppy dogs and lollipops. Not only will one of you betray me, not only will one of you deny me, but each one of you and my merry band are going to be scattered each all the way back to their own home. You see that all the way in verse 32, just in front of our verse. They're going to be scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus warns them in John 15, the world is going to hate you. Because the world hates me. And the world is going to persecute you just like they persecuted me. Jesus is incredibly honest with his disciples. On the one hand, he speaks hopeful words and comforting words, but he also deals with the harsh reality of their being his disciples in a world that is cursed by sin and groaning for redemption that is hostile to the gospel and is filled with tribulation. He's going to tell them the good as well as the bad. He is going to give them the hopeful as well as the scary. And so when he says, I have said these things, those things that he has said, it, it, they are holy things, they are loving things, and they are truthful things. They are defining reality so that none of them would get caught off guard by things like persecution, by things like hatred of the gospel and of the church, and so that none of them would be caught off guard by disease or death. This is the reality of life in a world cursed by sin. So he has spoken to them holy words and he has spoken to them loving words and he spoke to them true words. I have said these things to you. But why did he say it? What's the purpose? Well, he goes on to say in verse 33, here's the purpose, that in me you may have peace. Peace is the purpose. But that raises a question. How can Jesus say such dark and foreboding things like you're going to get hated, you're going to get persecuted, you're going to get scattered and say, I'm telling you all of this so that you'd have peace. I want to let you know all about the tribulation that's going to come so that you would have peace. Well, that seems a little backwards, doesn't it? Well, brothers and sisters, I think this should lead us to understand that it's not just the hopeful and the happy promises that give us peace, but it's also the hard sayings and the warnings. Both are equally God's grace to us, and we are unwise to prefer the one over the other as we aim to follow him faithfully in this world. And that's because, listen, the Bible, in the Bible, hard words aren't meant to unsettle us. They are meant to stabilize us. Hard words that define reality about tribulation and trouble in this life are meant to prepare us. 
Jesus speaks hard words about harsh realities, not to break us, but to buttress us and to strengthen us. And in that way, they are meant to give us peace in times of persecution and in times of pandemic. But how do we come to possess it? How do we come to possess this peace? Well, brothers and sisters, I would ask you in recent weeks when you've been tempted toward fear or anxiety, in what ways have you tried to find peace? Perhaps you, like me, have taken time to figure out where you fall on the mortality charts. I'm 42 years old. I'm relatively healthy. I'm not immunocompromised. If I contract the virus, the probability, according to experts, is that the probability that I'll die is less than 1%. And yet some of you who are younger than me seem to fare even better on the charts, while others of you who are older than me and are perhaps immunocompromised fare a bit worse. And yet even in the worst case scenarios, the probability of contracting this virus and then dying is less than 5 or 6%, right? I mean, those are pretty good probabilities. Am I right? At least that was the way that I was thinking until I began to receive emails from friends this week who had family members and close friends who had been hospitalized, some of whom are on respirators, and one of whom has since passed away. And it just popped my bubble of false security. Our hope is not in probabilities. Our hope is in providence and promises, not probabilities. Peace in pandemic is not going to come in numbers or statistics or risk profiles. It doesn't come with knowing enough about the virus or being strong enough or young enough or having enough hand sanitizer on hand. Jesus speaks hard words about the reality of life in a hard world so that we would not find our peace in the world, but that we would find our peace in him. Do you see that in the passage? Look at the contrast. I have said these things to you that in me, you will have peace because in the world, you have tribulation. There's two places for you to look for peace. In Christ or in the world. One will grant true peace. The other will grant a foe and a false peace because it will only give you tribulation. What are you hoping in? Where are you searching for peace? Well, one brother this week recounted a time when one of his seminary professors was diagnosed with cancer. He was quoted, he quoted, this professor was, he was quoted an 85% five-year survival rate with treatment, which he pursued. And you would think, well, those are pretty good odds, right? 85%, that seems pretty good. But he recalls his professor saying, uh, you know, I don't know about those numbers. I'd say that my odds are 100% or 0%. If the Lord wills, I will be here in five years. If not, then I will be with him in five years. And this brother said of his professor, rather than putting his hope on a relatively encouraging 
or focusing and despairing on that still substantial 15% risk, he entrusted himself to the one who would keep him safe no matter what comes. And so I ask you again, brothers and sisters, what is your only hope in life and death? It's not probabilities or statistics. It's not being young enough or healthy enough or having enough hand sanitizer or toilet paper. What is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Thomas Boston Old Scottish Puritan, he wrote this comment on this verse, verse 33. He said, this is a dark and gloomy day, speaking about his own day and bitter providences that had come into his own life, though I'm not sure what those were. But he said, this is a dark and a gloomy day in which there seems to be a black cloud of wrath hanging over our heads which if mercy does not prevent is likely to fall heavily upon us. I wonder if you have felt like that in the last month. And yet the storm never blows so hard, but the children of God may have peace. Being though upon a sea yet in a ship that cannot sink, our text, talking here about verse 33, he says, is the conclusion of our Lord's farewell sermon to his disciples in which we have the use and end of the whole, namely that they might have peace. That is, inward peace, inward prosperity, contentment and quietness of mind in the midst of trouble. All this they might have in him. Being united to him by faith, that they might have peace in him as Noah had in the ark while the deluge was on the earth. His own word was the mean by which they were thus to obtain peace in him. This word, the word that he has spoken to them, this holy and loving and truthful word, this word, he says, leads the soul to Christ where it may get peace and teaches how to employ Christ for peace. That peace is the goal and it can only be had in Christ. I love the image that he uses that if you are one who by faith is in Christ and you are a part of his church, all must work for your good. He says, just like Noah, though you may be on a sea that is violent, and is tossed by a wicked storm, you are on a ship that cannot sink because you are in Christ. His anchor holds within the veil. So Jesus says, I've said these things so that in me you might have peace. But he also says, in this world, well, you're going to have tribulation. So we've considered, first of all, this first point that, that you can have 
peace. But now we see here in our second point, you will have trouble. And we see really two things in Jesus' statement. We see, first of all, an assured problem. And we see an appointed path. We see an assured problem and an appointed path. What do I mean by an assured problem? Because this world has been cursed by God due to sin. And because we have a great enemy that that hates God, that hates the gospel, and hates his church, we can be confident and assured of tribulation in this life. It is inevitable. And that includes disease and death. And this, according to the Bible, is the appointed path into the kingdom for every single one of Christ's disciples. So some of you may remember in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are circling back through the cities in which they had preached the gospel and planted churches. And they were doing three things according to Acts 14, 22. They were, first of all, strengthening the souls of the disciples. They were, secondly, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And thirdly, they were teaching them or saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There is no other path. There is no other road for the disciples of Christ to take but through tribulation in order to enter the kingdom of God. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 3, we read that when Paul was in prison, he sent Timothy to the church so that he might establish them and exhort them in their faith. Why? He says, so that no one may be moved by these afflictions. Thomas Boston again says, there are times of extraordinary providence which prove to be extraordinary tribulations. But then he turns around and he says, it's hard to stand in an evil day. But it's most hard when we're surprised by it. Jesus is warning his disciples that in this world you will have tribulation. He's warning us, telling us, the harsh realities of following him in a world that is cursed by sin so that we will not get caught off guard. And in not getting surprised and caught off guard, we might, by his grace, according to his word, stand firm that we might take heart. So Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be surprised. He wants them to be prepared. There is no other path. Our path into the kingdom is a path that prunes and shapes and sanctifies. It is one full of trial and tribulation. It will be filled with persecution and opposition. It will be filled with disease and demons and death. And there is no other path. There is no my best life now path. There is no health, wealth, and prosperity path. This is the path appointed by God and his providence for us to enter his kingdom. And in so doing, prove that we are his disciples. So now having defined reality of following him in a sin-cursed world, Jesus gives a command. He says, take heart. Be courageous is what it means. And so here we find our third point. You must have courage. And here in this last part, we're going to see two things. We're going to see an essential command. Take heart. 
And we're going to see an empowering truth. I have overcome the world. Just consider that command briefly. Take heart. That world itself means to be firm and resolute in the face of adverse circumstances. And so is what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, life is tough. Be tougher. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, no, listen, when life serves you lemons, make lemonade. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying, listen, you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, put your head down and suck it up. Stop being a baby. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. The essential command that he gives here to take heart or be courageous is sourced in an empowering truth. It is rooted in a spiritual and a theological reality. I have overcome the world. How can you take heart? Because I've already won. How can you take heart? Because the victory is mine and you are in me, which means the victory is yours. That word overcome is in the perfect tense. The victory has been accomplished once and for all, but the effects of that victory are being worked out now progressively in the life of the church. And it will one day be complete when Christ comes back. And one such effect, ongoing effect of the victory of Christ is our peace in a world filled with tribulation. That when his people have peace in a troubled world, it bears witness to the truth that Christ has overcome the world. But when those who claim the name of Christ are characterized by fretfulness and fear and anxiety from the world, then they bear witness that perhaps the world has overcome Christ. And so he says, you have to be courageous. No, we won't be courageous perfectly as Jesus was. We will be constantly tempted to fear and constantly tempted to grow anxious and yet God in his grace will hold us fast, bring us back in repentance, deepen us and more deeply root us in Christ. In fact, that word overcome literally means to conquer, to prevail in battle, to win in the face of adversity. But here's what's interesting. John only uses this verb overcome one time in his gospel, and it's here. He doesn't use it anywhere else. But when you get to his epistles, especially 1 John, and you get to Revelation, he uses it all over the place. Why? You may remember at the end of the gospel of John, Mary is holding on to Jesus. And you remember what he says? Let go of me, woman. Why is he just trying to be rude? No. It's because he is set to accomplish all that he said to his disciples in the upper room discourse. And the only way that he's going to be able to do that is if he ascends to the Father. And he needs to ascend to the Father in order the Father to send the Spirit, and the Spirit will then empower the church for mission in the world. 
It will take the truth of what Christ has accomplished and will apply it in all of its once and for allness to God's regenerate people in such a way that overcoming and conquering goes from being mentioned once prior to the cross to being the banner of God's people after the cross in the power of the Spirit. Let me just show you how John uses this word outside of his gospel for our own encouragement and edification. You can turn to Revelation chapter 5. Turn to your right to Revelation chapter 5. John is weeping. He's wondering who is going to be able to open the scroll. Who could possibly look into it? And then in verse 5, one of the elders turns to John in his vision and says, weep no more. In other words, have joy. Why? Watch what happens. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Same word. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He uses the same word in Revelation 17.4 where we see a cosmic battle between the lamb and those who wage war against the lamb. Turn to your right, just a few pages. Revelation 17, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, or 14 rather, not 4, 14. Sorry about that. Verse 14. They, that is those who belong to Babylon, will make war on the lamb. And look at this. The lamb will conquer them, overcome them. Same word. And why will he do it? Because he explains, he is the Lord of lords and he is the king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Christ has conquered the world. But John doesn't just apply this verb to Christ. He also applies this verb to Christians. Christ has overcome the world and we have now overcome the world in Christ. Turn to 1 John, just a little bit to your left, to John's first epistle, 1 John. He says in verses 13 and 14, I'm writing to you young men because you have, check the verb, overcome the evil one, conquered him. Verse 14, I'm writing to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You have conquered the evil one. It's not only Jesus who conquers the ruler of this age, but it's also his disciples. It is not only him who is crushed under the foot of Christ, though that's true. But Paul writes, even in Romans 16, that he is crushed under our feet. That is the church. And did you notice that it's not only his disciples who also overcome the ruler of this age, but how do they do it? Verse 14, by the word of God abiding in them. That's what we just saw in John 15 prior to his final address in John 16, that you will abide in me, my word in you, and my joy will be in you, and you will have peace. How do they do it? By the word of God abiding in them. If the word of God is not abiding in you, then the very means of grace appointed by God for your conquering 
is not at work. You will not conquer in this life sin and Satan without the word of God abiding in you. It's an essential ingredient. But he goes on to say in 1 John 4.4, 4, look at this, moving over to your right, 1 John 4.4. 4. He says, little children, you are from God and you have, same verb, overcome them. Them is speaking of the antichrists, those who come in the spirit of antichrist who, who are opposed to the gospel and are opposed to a right confession of Christ as the son of God. You have overcome them. How? By what means? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Oh, the power and the influence of the, or the power and the influence of the world is powerful, isn't it? It has been over the last month that it is waging war for your souls and your minds and it will rob you of every ounce of fear, of, of joy and of peace that you might have in Christ. But A.W. Pink says this, the power and the influence of the world is powerful, but it's not all powerful. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We conquer in Christ by his grace. But John doesn't just stop there. In fact, if you go to Revelation again, Revelation chapters two and three, you've got John's letters to the seven churches, little mini sermons from Jesus through John to various churches. Some are good churches, some are bad churches. Some are faithful, some are not so faithful. But at the end of every single one of these prayers, you see the same thing, the same phrase, Look at verse seven in chapter two, to the one who conquers. You're gonna see that at the end of every single one of these letters. He says, to the one who conquers, same verb as in John 16, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Just listen to some of these promises that attach to the conquerors. Verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That is not the first death, physical death. That is spiritual death and judgment. God, you will endure God's judgment and have eternal life to the one who conquers. He also says in verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He says, <clears throat> To the one who conquers, verse 26, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as my, I myself have received authority from my father. Those who conquer will rule with Christ who conquers. But he keeps going into chapter three. To the one who conquers, verse five, they will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Verse 21, to the one who conquers, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Christ has conquered the world. We have conquered the world in Christ. That is the message to the churches, to the one who conquers. But he doesn't just stop there. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, Paul continues to use this verb of conquering. Verse, excuse me, sorry about that. He says in verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. They have conquered him. Who is the one who conquers? According to John here, well in verse 11, it's our brothers or verse 10 rather. It's our brothers, it's fellow believers. It's persecuted Christians. And who do they conquer? Well, according to verse 9, it was the great dragon, that ancient serpent, the one who is called the devil. And how did they conquer? By two things, by the blood of the lamb, that is through the forgiveness of sins and the word of their testimony, that is the power of the gospel. They are more than conquerors. And then John concludes in Revelation 21 at the very end of the book. The very end of his vision, he says in Revelation 21, 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. What is that heritage? It's eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, and it's all of the blessings of salvation that have been outlined in Revelation 2 and 3 in the promises of the gospel. Forgiveness of sins, to rule with Christ, to, not, to, to survive the second death, all of those are the inheritance found in the new heavens and the new earth. And what will be true? I will be his God and he will be my son. It's interesting that he talks about son in the singular in verse seven, even though he's talking about a population of people, of the church. And that means that all of us are one in Christ. And all of us share in his one inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. And all of us enjoy the right of a firstborn son in ruling with Christ as he has sat down with his father. So all of this is in John's mind when he writes the gospel and records Jesus saying, be courageous. I have conquered the world. Do you believe that? Does the testimony of your life over the last four weeks testify to this truth that Christ has conquered the world and that we have conquered sin, death, and Satan in him? This is what it means to take heart, to be courageous in the face of tribulation by God's grace. In union with the one who has overcome, we overcome. R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, the world threatens to crush you and me every minute of our lives. It hurls insults, tribulations, pain, death. 
all sorts of things that can take away the joy that should be ours in Christ. But Jesus overcame the world. That is why the apostle could say that we are more than conquerors, same verb in Romans 8, through Christ who loves us. It isn't because we have the power to defeat the world, he says. We don't. It's because he has overcome the world for us. Where do we find peace? It is in Christ. And that peace will be a peace that surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4. And it will be a peace that we have even in the face of tribulation. Practically speaking, though, what does this courage look like? Let me give you a handful of applications. Number one, it looks like trusting the word of God over the words of men. It's really important to be informed by true words from medical experts, government officials, and news outlets. But it's far more important for us to be informed and prepared for the reality in which we live by the words of Jesus. The words of experts, politicians, and newsrooms are changing every day. If they weren't, you wouldn't be tuning into the news every day. No sooner are they spoken than do they begin to wither like grass and fade like flowers, and that can lead to anxiety. But Jesus' words never change. They do not wither, and they cannot fade. They endure forever. And they lead not to anxiety and to fear, but they lead to peace and courage in him. So brothers and sisters, with all of this time perhaps that you've had at home, what have you given your time to? Whose word are you listening to the most? Has it led to peace? Or has it led to anxiety and fear? Brothers and sisters, let us trust the word of Christ more than we trust the words of men. Secondly, this courage looks like making greater effort to distance ourselves from sin than from sickness. Many of you have gone to great lengths to prepare yourself for the apocalypse. You've got canned goods all over your house. You've got TP for 10 years. You've got more hand sanitizer than you'll ever know what to do with. You wash your hands to the point where they're dry and they're chapped. You avoid contact. You're taking all of the precautions that you need to take. Are you taking even greater effort to distance yourself from the sickness of sin as you are from the coronavirus? Are you taking the same kind of precautions, putting in the same kind of intentionality, applying the same kind of necessary remedies to resist temptation and put sin to death. We've already seen that pornography sites have reported almost a tripling of viewership. Abuse hotlines can't take all of the calls right now. Alcoholism is on the rise Joblessness and corruption, 
All of these things are in the increase as our world is scrambling to find comfort and peace and escape what feels like the wrath of God hanging over our world. Isolation plus anxiety is a deadly recipe for us. That it can lead perhaps to all kinds and we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard against sloth and laziness. May it not be said of any member in this church that when we got to the end of the coronavirus, we look back and our crowning achievement is that we made it to the end of our favorite show on Netflix. May this be the season for every single one of us where we grew to trust in the promises of God in ways that we'd never have before. That we've engaged his word in ways that we never have before. That we've engaged saints both in the present and the past through good books in ways that we never have before. That we've used our technology in a way to feed our souls and not deaden our souls in ways that we never have before. May that be true of every single member in our church. That we would guard ourselves against laziness and apathy and worldliness. The things that you're running to and all of the extra time that you have are giving you a clue as to what your heart loves most. And if that's not Jesus, then God is kind to send a coronavirus and he is, signed, he is gracious to assign you to your home so that that might be exposed and you might run to Christ in repentance and faith. Some of us, though, perhaps if it's not laziness or if it's not slothfulness, it may be a temptation to abuse food or alcohol. That isolation plus anxiety may lead us to eat in ways that do not glorify God, but rather that we seek our comfort in food and not in Christ, or our comfort in a couple extra glasses of wine, or our comfort in, in whatever it may be instead of in Christ. Friend, these are good gifts of God, but they cannot be made ultimate. Once they are made ultimate, they become bad things for us. We have to guard ourselves and what we put in. The shows that we're watching, we have to guard ourselves even more vigilantly against growing cold toward our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in the church, of growing increasingly self-focused and self-protective and self-oriented. Because if I were the devil, what I would love to do is take Christians who have been called to love God and love others, and I would love to get them isolated and thinking only about how they might be able to protect their own bodies for the next however long we're going to be doing this. I want them to be consumed with it. I want them to be scared of people such that they won't serve people. Brothers and sisters, we've got to guard against sin more diligently than we guard against the virus. Are we doing that well? Let's get online with one another. Let's talk to one another. Let's text and call one another so that we might help one another resist the deceitfulness of sin in these days. Thirdly, it looks like loving your neighbor at your own risk. There are wise precautions that we should all take to ensure one another's safety and the safety of the most vulnerable in our city as we guard against the further spread of the virus. That is good and right. But if we're not careful, 
Fear and anxiety can tempt us to seek our own protection and our own preservation at the expense of loving our neighbor. But because Christ is conquered and we are more than conquerors in him, we can now love God and others more, as we saw in Revelation 12, even more than we love our own lives. You say, well, that's a pretty radical statement. Yeah, it is. It means that if the difference between me obeying God and not obeying God is putting me in harm's way and loving and serving a brother or a sister or a neighbor in need, then I've got to obey God. Man's prudence, government edicts, do not void the word of God. And we cannot put them on the level of God. And we cannot justify our lack of love for discernible needs among our neighbors by saying, well, I'm really loving them by staying away from them and not loving them. If I were the devil, I'd love to twist that justification so that you might see and I might see in our own apathy and in our, in our own moving away from others in our generosity or otherwise, virtue where there may not in fact be virtue. This was what Martin Luther faced in 1527. The bubonic plague had just struck Wittenberg. Luther and his professors were ordered in a letter by Elector Johann Frederick on August 10th to leave the city. They were going to move the they were going to move the, um, the university to another city where the plague had not yet hit, and they were going to continue to do it there where it was safe. But Luther was unmoved by the elector's letter. He decided to remain in Wittenberg to minister to those who remained in the city despite his own bouts with sickness and with depression. It was not an easy time. Tribulation was the path. And even though he did give grounds for Christian prudence and of staying away and of guarding from the spread of the gospel or spread of the virus, just like we're doing now, in a letter to John Hess, which was also published as a pamphlet, Luther declared that while it may be prudent for Christians to flee the plague under certain conditions, he said, however, as a Christian pastor, like a good shepherd, he said, I'm commanded by Christ to stay despite danger of death because I'm needed for my flock for comfort and strength in the hour of death. In the excerpt of that pamphlet, he offers an emphatic response to the devil who he identifies as ultimately tempting us away from love of neighbor out of fear of death. And this is what he says, as only Luther can. He says, when anyone is overcome by horror and repugnance in the presence of a sick person, he should take courage and strength in the firm assurance that it is the devil who stirs up such abhorrence, fear, and loathing in his heart. He is such a bitter, knavish devil that he not only unceasingly tries to slay and kill, but also to take delight in making us deathly afraid worried and apprehensive so that we would regard dying as horrible and have no rest or peace all through our life. And so the devil would excrete us out of this life, literally poop us out of this life 
as only Luther would say, as he tries to make us despair of God, becoming unwilling and unprepared to die and under the stormy and dark sky of fear and anxiety, make us forget and lose Christ, our light and our life, and to desert our neighbor in his troubles. We would sin thereby against God and man. That would be the devil's glory and delight because we know that it is the devil's game to induce such fear and dread, we should in turn minimize it. Take such courage as to spite and annoy him and send those terrors right back to him. And we should arm ourselves with this answer to the devil. Get away, you devil, with your terrors. Just because you hate it, I will spite you by going the more quickly to help my sick neighbor. I'll pay no attention to you. I've got two heavy blows to use against you. The first one is that I know that helping my neighbor is a deed well-pleasing to God and all the angels and that by this deed, I do God's will and render true service and obedience to him. All the more so because if you hate it and are so strongly opposed to it, it must be particularly acceptable to God. Or how could I, by flattering you, Give you and your devils in hell reason to mock and laugh at me. No, you'll not have the last word. If Christ shed his blood for me and died for me, why should I not expose myself to some small dangers for his sake and disregard this feeble plague? If you can terrorize, Christ can strengthen me. If you can kill, Christ can give life. If you have poison in your fangs, Christ has far greater medicine. Should not my dear Christ with his precepts, his kindness, and all of his encouragement be more important in my spirit than you, roguish devil, with your false terrors in my weak flesh? God forbid. Get away, devil. Here is Christ, and here I am, his servant in the work. Let Christ prevail. Amen.